You're listening to The Regulatory Roundtable, a funds regulatory and compliance podcast brought to you by the global law firm Simpson Thatcher. The Regulatory Roundtable offers insight from leading regulatory and enforcement lawyers. We look forward to having you join us at the table. Welcome, everyone. I'm Megan Kelly, and I'm joined by my partner, David Blass, who will be giving us an overview of the private fund advisor rules recently adopted on August 23rd. The big development, of course, is that the rules are now the subject of active litigation. So before we get into the substance of the rules, David, can you give us an update on the litigation challenging the rules? Yeah, thank you, Megan. It's always a pleasure to uh, to talk with you, uh, even if it's about a, a less than pleasant topic for, for many. Uh, you're absolutely right. The uh, private fund advisor rules um, uh, are subject to a, a litigation, a challenge to the SEC's authority to adopt them. Uh, we'll see that play out over the next several months, uh, but one of the main challenges that the uh, the litigants are, are, are bringing against the SEC is that it did not have the authority to adopt a, a pretty substantial rule set directed exclusively at advisors to private funds without a, a clear congressional mandate. Great. So we'll certainly stay tuned for that. And we will spend most of our time today on certain elements of the new rules as adopted. But before we dive in, David, can you talk briefly about any surprises in the adopted rule package as there seem to be a few? Yeah, there were, there were a few and, and two that immediately come to my mind are the treatment of the indemnification provisions by the SEC. I'm sure you'll remember, Megan, the SEC proposed effectively to prohibit uh, common indemnification and exculpation uh, provisions that exist in, in limited partnership agreements. The SEC did not adopt that proposed rule, which, was, which would have been very controversial had it done so. Instead, it included in the release accompanying the final rule set a fairly lengthy discussion, the SEC's views of the existing laws that applies to indemnification provisions. In that discussion, the SEC pointed back to guidance that the, the SEC itself had issued in 2019, so reiterated that prior guidance and indicated that it would be looking for, quote-unquote, savings uh, clauses in indemnification or exculpation provisions Many indemnification provisions, maybe even most that, that I've, I've seen since the rule was adopted, include a savings clause concept. So it's, it's quite possible that discussion will not have a significant impact on, on agreements going forward. We'll have to wait and see how the, the market reacts to that discussion. The other surprise that jumped out to me was, maybe it's a surprise, maybe I should not have been surprised, is that the rule set largely focuses on disclosure as compared to the proposal, which had a number of pretty much blanket prohibitions. And that's uh, that focus on disclosure and obtaining client consent in some cases is very much consistent with the historical application of the Advisors Act. So that's why it probably shouldn't have been a surprise to me. But, you know, we weren't sure going into the final rule set where the SEC would land. And, and uh, it, it, so it, it, it became a surprise just hearing the SEC's approach and reading the rule set and, and seeing that it is largely consistent with a disclosure-based regime, which is how the Advisors Act has worked uh, the last several decades. Nonetheless, I do want to point out this rule is very impactful. A lot of the, the new rules are going to be challenging for advisors to... Uh, to come to terms with, especially for advisors 
that are new entrants into the private fund marketplace, maybe smaller, have less of an existing operational capability. So I don't want to diminish the impact of the rule. It's a heavy lift. So maybe let's dive into the rules as adopted. And there's sort of two overarching sets of rules. One that apply to registered private fund advisors, so not to ERAs. And then we'll talk about the other set of rules that apply to all private fund advisors, so both RIAs and ERAs. So starting with the rules applying only to registered private fund advisors, uh, we'll talk about four buckets relating to one, annual and quarterly fund reporting, two, GP-led secondaries, three, audits of private funds, and four, documented annual compliance reviews. So starting at the top with the annual and quarterly fund reporting requirements, which, which are going to require a lot of work, as you just previewed, David. Can you speak to these requirements? That is the big operational lift of all of the rules you you uh, described. I think the other three, you know, we have to pay attention to them, but much less impactful. The annual and especially quarterly fund reporting is going to be a big deal. Now, the good news is the SEC gave a little bit more time for compliance with that particular rule. That rule will come into effect 18 months after the rule package is published in the Federal Register. As of today and mid-September, that has not yet occurred, probably won't occur until later uh, September. So you're looking at compliance with this reporting starting in roughly mid-2025. The quarterly reporting, though, is going to be a problem because it needs to be reported on a 45-day basis. So 45 days after the end of a quarter, this report needs to go out, at least for funds that are not, quote-unquote, funds of funds. For a fund of fund, you have a little bit of extra time. That's 75 days after the quarter end. But for other funds, it's 45 days after the fiscal quarter. The report has to contain two sets of information. One is information about the performance of the fund. And for illiquid funds, meaning private equity, closed-in funds, that performance reporting will ultimately have to be about the, the, the performance over the quarter, but also performance going back to inception of a fund and be presented on a levered and unlevered basis. Some of our clients do that today, so maybe not that big of an impact for them other than the fact that they have to do it on a quarterly basis going forward. But other clients have, have not been calculating performance on an unlevered basis. They've just been reporting performance, which would include the effect of leverage naturally. And for them, they'll have to find a way to recalculate performance going back to the fund's inception. For liquid funds, there's a different regime. It's reporting, again, within 45 days, but on a 1, 5, 10-year performance track record. It's a kind of a standardized Perform, uh, a time period for performance reporting, and they don't have the same uh, levered and unlevered issue, at least for uh, for open-end liquid funds. The annual reporting would have to be 90 days after the uh, end of the year for funds that are not uh, fund of, funds of funds, 120 days for funds of funds. So those are the time frames, 45 days after a quarter period, 90 days after year-end for funds that are not fund of funds, 75 days and 120 days for funds of funds uh, to, to report. And again, those reporting requirements kick in mid-2025. And, and just on those timing requirements, David, so the 45 days for the quarter 
report is very tight, as you said. And I, I found it interesting in the do- adopting release, I think intended to provide some comfort in the case of inability to meet that time frame. But I think it's really not much comfort. And I'd be curious in your views on that. I think the adopting release stated that adv- advisors failing to comply with a delivery timetable uh, would not have a basis for an enforcement action if the circumstances were reasonably unforeseeable and if the advisor reasonably believed that the quarterly statement would be distributed by the applicable deadline and thereafter the advisor can deliver the statement as promptly as practicable. Yeah, so they're, they're, I, I think what the SEC is trying to anticipate are situations like our, what we had in the COVID days where you just have a loss of operational ability to perform or you're relying on a service provider that's preparing the, the reports and uh, shipping them out. I would not count on that relief for getting the information together. So I think advisors, even, even with the risk of litigation against the SEC, advisors are going to have to pay attention to all of the rules and start the process towards compliance, not with pending the litigation. But this one's in particular going to require a lot of attention because you have to build pipelines of information in order to compile what's required in those reports. I've already talked about performance reporting. The other aspect of the report is compensation or fees or uh, monetary uh, payments from portfolio companies as well as the funds to the advisor and its related persons. That kind of reporting might exist uh, in some uh, shops, but doesn't exist in a lot. And building the mechanisms, the pipelines to collect information in particular about payments, compensation, fees paid from portfolio companies to the advisor's related person. So not just to the advisor, which you know has some, some form of control over, over the information it has, but its affiliates as well. That's a heavy lift. And getting the pipeline put in place to collect that information, report it up to the advisor so that the advisor can generate this report and send it out within 45 days after quarter in, that's going to take some work to get ready for that. And while the litigation certainly will focus on, Megan, what you pointed out, which is why do we have this 45-day requirement when commenters said, hey, give us at least 60 days or, or more, and investors don't necessarily benefit much more from receiving it within 45 days as compared to 60. That, that certainly will be part of the litigation. Nonetheless, uh, you have to get ready for that uh, operationally. And in my experience, those kind of operational changes take a lot of lead in, lead time to get ready for. So we're, we're, I, I would counsel uh, uh, affected private advisors to be focusing on the reporting quite a bit. The other uh, categories of rules you mentioned, Megan, you have GP-led secondaries, the requirement to obtain a valuation or fairness opinion for each GP-led secondary. My understanding is that that's pretty common already. There can be exceptions where neither the GP nor the limited partner uh, or the recipient of the secondary's transaction really want or need a fairness opinion. But you know, nonetheless, the, r- the rule requires it for every GP-led secondary. So we'll have to uh, uh, obtain those each uh, in each circumstance. For the most part, that, that's already occurring. The required audit of private funds, this is a slight override of the custody rule. So all private funds would have to have an audit in each year. But, you know, many already do 
today. So uh, there, there are going to be exceptions where that's impactful, but not in an overarching way, like really um, hugely impactful to the industry as, as such. And then you mentioned a, a slight sleeper, Megan, which is a requirement that kicks in 60 days, so two months after the rule is published in the Federal Register. So roughly calendar year end 2023, which is that all registered investment advisors, including ones that don't manage private funds, must document their annual compliance review. Today they do it. Some advisors have a practice of documenting their annual review. Some don't. After this rule goes into effect towards the end of 2023, all advisors must document their compliance review each year. So one to pay attention to, not a heavy, heavy lift, but a a potential change in practice for some advisors. Right. And as you say, it could come up very quickly, especially for those advisors, depending where they are in their annual review cycle. If they're up in early 2024, those will have to be documented if they weren't having that practice uh, already. Uh, One other thing on that topic um, from the adopting release is that the SEC made very clear that they do not credit privilege or work product claims over annual compliance review documents in an exam. Um, And they talked a little bit about how certain advisors were trying to do that, and the SEC called that improper. Um, so it's fair to say that SEC's position is is noted clearly in the adopting release uh, for privilege claims over such annual compliance reviews. So let's turn to rules that apply to all advisors to private funds. So here, uh, RIAs and ERAs, I think we can discuss four of them here. So one, Uh, what is effectively a prohibition on preferential liquidity and portfolio transparency rights where materially harmful to other LPs. Two, require disclosure of all preferential treatment terms, not just those materially harmful. Three, restrictions and prohibitions on charging compliance exams and investigations expenses. And four, restrictions on charging non-pro rata fees and expenses. So let's first turn to the rules regarding preferential liquidity and portfolio transparency rights. Yeah, Megan, if if I could ask you to indulge me to have a sidebar on a topic about application of the rule set generally outside the U.S. So we're turning here to the fact that the SEC's adopted rules that apply to all investment advisors, not just registered investment advisors. You mentioned ERAs, but it's literally the rule, if you read the rule, it's all investment advisors. The SEC did address non-U.S. investment advisors and in part gave some very meaningful relief from the rule to non-U.S. investment advisors, whether they're registered or not. It said it would not apply the rules, uh, the private fund advisor rules, to a non-U.S.-based investment advisor that manages a non-U.S. domiciled private fund, even if that private fund has U.S. investors in it which is very helpful to our colleagues outside the U.S. that the SEC would not be applying this rule to the non-U.S. advisors when managing non-U.S. funds. But coming back to substance, Megan, to answer your question. So, yeah, the the next one up in terms of like potentially impactful or, or truly impactful is the one you mentioned, which is an effective prohibition. I, I said that this rule set is disclosure-based. This is kind of a, the exception to the rule an effective prohibition on preferential terms with uh, one lim- or, or a few limited partners, not all limited partners, on transparency rights or liquidity rights 
if granting those rights would be materially negatively impactful or materially harmful to other LPs in the fund. And that's whether these preferential rights are granted to an LP as LP in the fund or to what the SEC calls a similar pool of assets, which could be a separate fund that invests alongside, has the same strategy and invests alongside the main fund. So in order to, after the compliance day for this rule and this part of the rule and all the ones we're about to talk about, have a 12-month compliance period. So starting at that date, whatever that date is, in order to grant preferential liquidity or preferential transparency rights, the advisor to the private fund would have to make a determination that granting those rights would not have a, a, a material negative impact on other limited partners. Yeah, and definitely going to require some close judgment, as you said. And and I would just note, some commenters ask the SEC to define or provide some specificity around what constitutes a material negative effect, but the SEC chose not to do so. And, and that's not a surprise for the SEC routinely chooses not not to do so when it uh, when it, it desires to have a broad interpretation of a term. And right. uh, I suspect that that's uh, the SEC's motivation here. And Megan, you mentioned other preferential terms. So we've been talking about preferential liquidity and transparency rights. Uh, the rule requires disclosure to LPs of other preferential uh, treatment. And there are time frames for disclosure. Some have to be required uh, disclosed to prospective investors in a fund. Some have to be disclosed upon a fund's closing and then at, on an annual basis. One important thing to keep in mind is when the compliance date comes, the rule does not grandfather or provide legacy treatment in the terms of the rule, existing funds from the disclosure requirements. So advisors should anticipate a need to disclose existing preferential treatment rights that have been granted to uh, investors in existing funds around the date of the compliance uh, uh, date that's going to come for these rules. So uh, advisors may want to start thinking about what that disclosure is going to look like, even if it's about a year away. The SEC did provide what they refer to as legacy treatment, meaning grandfathering, for the actual terms themselves, where those terms are in written operative documents for funds that have launched before the compliance period. And those uh, terms would not need to be amended, but they would need to be disclosed starting on, on that date. Right. And then turning to the restrictions and prohibitions on charging regulatory compliance, exam, and investigations expenses. This one's interesting because the treatment varies between restriction with disclosure, restriction with consent, outright prohibition. Can you speak a bit about these restrictions and prohibitions? Yeah. So these issues are not new, and it's not terribly surprising to see the SEC address them. To be clear, the one situation where the SEC outright prohibits reimbursements is where the advisor is actually subject to uh, an enforcement action under the Advisors Act. And it's not terribly surprising to see the SEC take that stance. For others, uh, as you point out, there's disclosure required. And for reimbursements of investigation expenses, consent from a majority of fund investors uh, required to uh, to permit uh, reimbursement. These issues kind of go back for a long time, how to think about examination and investigation expenses. Oftentimes, in particular outside the U.S., but also in the U.S., it can be hard to like disassociate these types of investigations or exams from the advisor as compared to the fund itself. 
under the Advisors Act, it's the advisor, presumably, but there can be situations where there's a blurring of lines. Regardless, uh, there will be a continued focus by the SEC under this rule on the level of disclosure that's provided to limited partners about the practice of reimbursement for uh, compliance, uh, exam and investigation expenses, and a desire by the SEC to see that at least a majority of the fund investors have consented to the reimbursement of those charges. You know, one question that I've received, and I'll give a preliminary view, is I don't read the rule as requiring situation by situation consent. It looks like it can be provided on a global basis up front for the reimbursement of those expenses, with the caveat that expenses can't be reimbursed if the uh, exam or investigation ends in formal charges under the Advisors Act against the advisor. That makes sense. And uh, as a segue a bit to the next topic on charging non-pro rata fees and expenses uh, on these compliance and exam expenses, I think it'll be interesting to see and focus on how to allocate across vehicles um, for more expenses that might blur the line, as you say, between advisor um, or other expenses. So so turning to the last restriction here we'll talk about today on charging non-prorata fees and expenses, and of course the SEC does not define prorata, can you talk about those provisions? Yeah, so this can come up with um, some situations where the main fund is investing, for example, in a portfolio company. Another fund also looks to invest in that portfolio company, and, but the fees and expenses are not uh, uh, borne equally by both funds, in particular where you have a, a broken deal where one fund may be uh, obligated to pay for the expenses that were incurred where another one was not. And the SEC did not prohibit uh, this non-pro rata treatment of fees and expenses. Instead, they require an advisor that engages in non-pro rata fee and expense practices to do two things. One, to provide the pay, I'm going to call it the paying fund, the paying fund investors advanced notice about the non-pro rata treatment. And I believe the time period for providing that notice is 45 days. The second is the advisor, and this is probably the more impactful uh, condition, the advisor has to make a determination that the non-pro rata allocation is fair and equitable. And that finding a fair and equitable will garner a lot of discussion and, and attention uh, over the next several months as we think about coming into compliance with that requirement. And again, this is one that has a 12-month compliance period. And there's a couple other provisions in the new rules about borrowings from clients, clawbacks, et cetera. Any words of wisdom on those provisions? Uh, you know, borrowing from fund clients isn't a particularly common practice. I think the comment p- uh, file backed that up. Uh, so I'm not seeing that as all that impactful, although... If uh, if there are situations where an advisor borrows from a fund, it would have to it would have to pay attention to that. Uh, clawbacks for taxes is, is interesting. The SEC moved completely away from what it proposed, which garnered significant pushback because it did not adequately or ad- accurately reflect clawback practices in the marketplace. Instead, they've uh, required disclosure for those uh, types of clawbacks. So hopefully we don't have a lot of clients that uh, uh, fall in that circumstance of uh, with the, uh, the tax clawback. Uh, but if they do, they'll have a disclosure obligation to them. Megan, I'd be curious if I could uh, take the microphone from you and ask you a question. Of course. 
Looking ahead with this rule set, we, we have a lot ahead of us with the litigation, with the compliance periods uh, spread between two months uh, for the compliance program documentation, 12 months for the preferential treatment and other provisions, and then 18 months for reporting from an examination and enforcement perspective. How are you thinking about what the SEC will be doing over the next several months? Sure. I think a, a key point in thinking about upcoming exam and enforcement scrutiny is just to stress what we've talked about today, that it would be very prudent to start preparing to comply with the rules by the relevant deadlines, notwithstanding the ongoing litigation. Of course, if there's a stay or pertinent ruling, things could change. But until then, you know, it's key to get the infrastructure in place, as you mentioned, the pipelines, additional personnel, trainings, etc., um, so as to avoid any footfalls in meeting the compliance deadlines. And then stepping back, anytime there are new rules, as you know, we always expect targeted examination activity, in- including through sweeps, to test compliance with the new rules. And by analogy, we've already seen this year a lot of exam testing and deficiencies related to the new marketing rule, which had the compliance date last year of November 4th, 2022, so not even a year ago. And I think we can expect enforcement scrutiny of potential violations. It will remain to be seen what types of violations the SEC will choose to handle through examination deficiencies versus through enforcement. Generally speaking, the more widespread and reckless or intentional any alleged violation is, as perceived by the staff, the more likely for enforcement involvement. And again, by analogy, we've already seen this year enforcement settlements related to the new marketing rule, specifically hypothetical performance so far, and I think we can expect more to come. And the last thing I'll mention before turning back to you, David, for additional thoughts is that these private fund advisor rules have attended books and records requirements that are really ripe for testing through document requests by exams and enforcement And the adopting release, in fact, notes explicitly in many places that the commission adopted these books and records requirements in part to aid the commission's examination and enforcement efforts. So overall, it would be wise for advisors to move forward in preparing to comply with the new rules. Uh, David, what else is on your mind from an exams and enforcement perspective? I clearly, Megan, agree with you about a continued focus on private funds, private fund advisors. There's a, every opportunity to for advisors to say, hey, we, we're busy implementing the form PF changes that were adopted. We have a lot of other things that we're busy implementing and thinking that especially the reporting obligations coming into effect mid-2025, that feels like a long way away and we have litigation, so who knows what will happen there. That time will evaporate. It'll be, it'll be gone before we know it. And so I would, um, notwithstanding other significant burdens uh, that I'm very sympathetic towards. I think it's uh, it's in every advisor's interest, to, if, if they advise a private fund, to be focusing on this rule set and in particular the reporting requirements and assessing what needs to be reported and getting a game plan together for gathering information to be able to meet those quarterly timelines, which are going to be very, very challenging. I think that's all for today. Stay tuned for the developments in the litigation and, of course, for other private fund exam and enforcement updates that may even come down before the SEC fiscal year is up September 30th. Thanks for joining, David, and thanks for listening. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Regulatory Roundtable. To hear about future episodes, be sure to follow the show in your favorite podcast app. 
To learn more about today's discussion or to reach out with questions or topics you would like to hear about on a future podcast, please contact us at regulatoryroundtable at stblaw.com or visit our website at regulatoryroundtablepodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by Simpson Thatcher for general informational purposes only. Listeners should not consider the information available via this podcast to be an invitation for an attorney-client relationship, should not rely on the information provided during the podcast as legal advice for any purpose, and should always seek the legal advice of competent counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Listeners should not act or refrain from acting based on any information made available via this podcast. And Simpson Thatcher expressly disclaims all liability in respect of actions taken or not taken based on any contents of this podcast. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that Simpson Thatcher makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of Simpson Thatcher.